Please give these words real contact with our lives and with our hearts. For the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. I read with great interest uh, this morning Martin Luther King Jr.'s final address to many of his followers. Uh, You may have heard this uh, speech. It's one that... um, uh, in which he gave instructions uh, so that the um, the work of racial equality would continue. And, and he also was somewhat prophetic in his uh, statements uh, regarding his own person. And I want to read to you from this last speech. He said to the, the crowd, we aren't going to let dogs or water hoses turn us around. We're going on. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter to me anymore because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight, and I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You may know that he was murdered the very next day. He was shot and killed. And yet this final speech still has life, has vitality, and continues to shape our thinking and actions related to racial equality. I want to think about the Great Commission tonight. It's a final speech that Jesus gave his disciples on the mountaintop. And he was telling them what was going to come, what the future was going to be like for them, what their task was in light of his physical withdrawal, his absence from them. And we have a very magnificent statement from the Lord, and I want to unpack it uh, tonight. But in Matthew 28, his version of Jesus' last speech, we see that the risen Jesus clusters around himself disciples and offers them final words. I don't have time to get into it tonight, but isn't it interesting that some of them worshipped and some doubted? There was even hesitation then because, remember, the human race had never seen anything like this. They didn't know what to do with it. But, but some are really in tune with what's occurring right in front of their eyes. And he commissions them. He gives them a task to perform And I want to say that this scene is a royal scene. Matthew 28 is all about uh, a royal claim and a royal decree. That this text is rich with the language of authority, of glory, of weight, of substance, from which comes this royal decree to all of the followers, all of the members of the kingdom of God. And so let me speak about the royal claim, which which gives... um, credibility to the royal decree. The royal claim is, uh, is rather um, 
divergent for the historical Jesus because we know in his ministry so far that whenever he does a really kind thing, he makes a loving gesture, he brings um, immediate mercy to somebody's life who had dealt with years and years of, of, of baggage, or he brings a, a healing miracle to somebody who's in desperate need. He frequently tells them not to say a word to anybody. Now, they almost never listen to him, but, but that was, those are his instructions. He's quiet about his messianic role. But now that's over. He is speaking very openly about the scope and the extent of his authority. And there's no obstruction. There's no hiddenness anymore. And I want to talk about the dimensions of this authority because this is quite a claim. Uh, Even the Caesar, who saw himself as a reflection of the eternal, never claimed the things that Jesus Christ claims for himself in the Great Commission. Even our own politicians, running for office as they are with, with great fervor and other things, uh, uh, even they don't get close yet uh, to saying some of the things that Jesus says in this passage. Let's consider the vertical dimension of the claim. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Now that harkens back to the opening language of Genesis of God who makes heaven and earth, uh, the realm that is uh, seen, the realm in which we interact, the realm in which we suffer, the earth, but also the heavens, that is the place where God is, is immediate in his presence and fully known and, and, uh, f- and fully communicative and fully expressed. And he says in this passage that every conceivable realm, every aspect, every dimension of reality is under his authority. Not just what we see, but what we don't see. Everything is under the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, now the universal Christ. But it's more than that. There's an immediate and horizontal dimension in, in verse 19. He tells his followers, to make disciples of all nations, technically all ethnic groups. It doesn't matter what language they speak. It doesn't matter what what, uh, skin tone they have. It doesn't matter um, what their lineage looks like, that whether it's Brazil or the Sudan, we are to go into all nations and make followers of Jesus Christ. And so there's a horizontal element of his kingdom that transcends national boundaries, languages, ethnic groups. Um, More than that, there's a timeless dimension of this uh, expression of kingship. He says to his followers, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That not only is uh, spiritual and earthly space under the authority of Christ and, and all nations to be brought to him, but even time itself, every second of time is permeated with the righteous rule of the Son of God. And that's the authority that he is claiming, vertical, horizontal, and timeless. But he's not just standing on his own authority and saying these things, these, these radical things. Uh, C.S. Lewis was right, you know. Anybody who would claim to have all authority in heaven and on earth, a timeless authority, is either right or wicked. And we believe, based on a variety of things, that Jesus is in fact right. But he's, he's standing on, um, on an ancient idea that was communicated by the prophet Daniel, who, uh, who 
had his ministry in the Old Testament, and Daniel uh, saw through a mist the future Messiah. He had a vision, a very vivid picture uh, was brought to his mind by the Holy Spirit, and he communicates that vivid image to us in the seventh chapter of his book. And this is what he says, and I want you to think about the Great Commission as understood through this passage. There was before me one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, an interesting uh, term for God, and was led into his presence. The Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. You hear the echoes in what Jesus is saying on the mountain when he's about to depart from his disciples. He stands in the place of David's or Daniel's son of man, and he claims a position that is all-invasive, all-comprehending, unrelenting. Um, And where does Jesus' credibility come from to make such audacious claims about himself? Well, the answer is the resurrection. The resurrection, you know, it isn't just about offering the world uh, the, the message that there's something beyond death. That's a big part of it. But the resurrection in the Old Testament was God's a promissory way of showing the world that he was on someone's side, that he would vindicate his servants through raising them to life after they had died. Well, Jesus was the only one living a perfect life who could be validated by resurrection. And so while the world turned its back on Jesus, said no to Jesus, God says yes to Jesus and raises him from the dead, thus showing the world that he was God's chosen servant, even if nobody else believed it. And so, so Jesus alone has the right, as the royal king, as the anointed one, as the Christ, to make such audacious, uh, ne- uh, everlasting claims about his own person. Uh, all earthly powers, all earthly kingdoms, all earthly authorities have biological stopwatches. By the way, there's some good news in that, um, because who knows what would happen if, uh, if tyrants... <laughs> Uh, and uh, slimy politicians didn't have uh, biological stopwatches. But the good news for us is that the risen Jesus has none, uh, that his reign doesn't have an end and will go on forever. And therefore, um, he's, he's professing in this, in this last speech a royal claim, a, a royal uh, nature, from which he offers us a royal command, a command that we're to take Uh, to heart. So there's a decree here, a royal decree, that he does not leave us in the dark. He he tells us what to do. He says, go and make disciples, students, apprentices. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then it's even easier, in, in a sense. He tells us how to do that. We don't have to feel around in the dark. He says, you baptize them and you teach them. Uh, you baptize them and you teach them, and both are very good news for us. Um, the first is this washing, this baptism. You make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, a few words about this. Um, baptism is this aquatic ritual that we perform in church uh, it, that, that symbolizes being made clean before God. 
the idea is that we are by nature uh, uh, far away from God and that we uh, have within us this pollution of sin, uh, this twisted nature which needs to be rectified, cleansed, and baptism is the outward sign of that bath, if you will, a bath before God, a bath that will never ever allow you to be dirty again. It cleans you forever. That's what it symbolizes for us. Um, But it's more than just baptism, him telling disciples to baptize. Remember, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, does this before Jesus is even on the scene. It's a particular kind of baptism. It's baptism in a certain name. And he gives this name to God. Fascinating, because if you were to ask a Jew before this moment, what is the name of God, they wouldn't have said it, most likely, because they would have considered the sacred name of God uh, to be too important to say. Uh, But it would have been Yahweh, right? I am that I am. And here, Jesus is saying, no, the name of God is now best understood as a relationship, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarian language. By the way, anybody who tells you that the Trinity is some manufactured idea that came about after Constantine uh, is not reading the New Testament. Not only is it clearly expressed here, it's implicit in many of the passages of the New Testament itself. And so we have a particularized baptism in the name of God. And I want to use this image for baptism tonight, that baptism means that your story is submerged into a, um, a, a better story. Now, all of us have very guiding, powerful narratives that tend to steer our lives. Um, and so uh, maybe you uh, uh, have this tattered narrative because you were terribly, terribly abused. And nobody in this room knows it. Truth be told, no one knows it. And maybe you, when you were young, um, uh, were treated very poorly compared to another sibling. Or maybe you fell into, in your adolescence, uh, some terrible patterns of acting out. Or maybe you tried to commit suicide. Or maybe you've had an abortion or two. Or maybe you, um, uh, you have great sort of pride and, and, uh, and judgment in you, especially as it relates to those closest to you. And there's so much scrutiny in your heart. Or, or you have this... Um, you have this inner rage that's in you that does leak out once in a while, and truth be told, it scares people. Uh, but you have this tattered story, this guiding story, this story that may involve pain or addiction or victimization, and, and, and it steers your life. It really does. It has grand authority. What baptism does in the most beautiful way is it takes that story, that tarnished, littered story, and drowns it. It takes it and submerges it into another story with other characters. And so your story is now not only defined by, by mistakes, by sin, by darkness, by an absence of, of right thinking and, and right behavior. Your story is now defined by Father, the one who made you in his own image, does not think you're gross, and, and loves you enough to send a son who was willing to give his life away to save you, and then send the Holy Spirit to actualize in you, right here, right now, the very work of that Christ, so that you, from the inside out, begin to morph and, uh, and represent more fully your own true humanity. And so your story is taken into that bigger story, and now that bigger story becomes your story and replaces the old narrative. And that old narrative starts to lose its efficacy and power. And so that's what happens in baptism. You're submerged into the Trinitarian story of the Bible. And it's a heck of a lot better than mine, probably better than yours. Um, And this is why baptism is such a beautiful and important idea 
You know, many people put off baptism. They get, they get very nervous about being baptized because they think that they're not perfect enough or not committed enough. This happened in the early church all the time. People put baptism off to the last days of their life, thinking that they didn't want to commit some big sin that would then negate the grace of the baptism. It's crazy. Let me say this to you. Baptism is not about your personal testimony. Baptism is about the testimony of Jesus Christ for you. It's about God's story for you and you being submerged into that story and being made new in Jesus Christ. That's the good news of that sacrament. And so if you're not baptized, talk to me. We can do it really soon. We're in this business. Um, and so, um, so I encourage you uh, as a follower of Jesus to, to be obedient to that command and to receive that washing. Okay. But he also says then you teach them. You wash them and you teach them. You make disciples by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Um, we're not left in the dark as Christians when it comes to how do we figure out the Christian life? How do we how do, we do this thing? Um, we are told how, to, how our lives are to be shaped. This is helpful. This is very helpful. I'll tell you why. It has to do with my most recent move to Grove City. I... Um, I did something really dumb after I purchased and constructed our daughter's bunk bed from Ikea. There were directions of like smiley stick figures about how to put this, this bed together, and the directions, of course, were in Swedish, so that's helpful. Um, and the bed was called a Mydale. I don't know what a Mydale is. I think it's a made-up word. I don't even think it's a Swedish word. So I constructed the Mydale, and then I threw away the directions, thinking, well, we're not going to move for like a million years, so I guess I won't need these anymore. Um, well, that was dumb. And so I took the bed apart, which was not difficult, but then in the new house, tried to construct it and put it back together. I found some substandard directions on the website for the MyDale, which were missing pages and not helpful. Um, and so I'm constructing the MyDale by myself um, uh, with, with a, a beer in one hand and a power tool in the other, <laughs> trying to figure this out and kill my frustration at the same time. There were about eight parts left out of the MyDale. I don't know where they go. Hopefully the thing will not collapse on my daughters. That is my earnest prayer. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, um, I didn't have the directions, and so I was making this thing up, and it was not brilliant. I'm just saying, not brilliant. Um, the great news about the, the Great Commission is that we don't have to make this thing up when it comes to, like, how do you actually live out the Christian life? What does it look like day to day? Um, uh, theologians will sometimes call this the third use of the law, but it can be very, very helpful because it means that you're not on your own, depending on your own insight and powers all the time, because I'm not that wise all the time. Uh, it's even, you know, it gets worse. It isn't just bad setting up a bunk bed. The moral life is sometimes harder to figure out. But Jesus offers us, in his person and in his teaching, directions that give shape to the Christian life. Now, here's the thing. Often, um, I find myself rejecting commands. When people tell me what to do, there is an adolescent impulse in me to do the opposite. This is why St. Paul says that sometimes the law increases the trespass, because it agitates our sinful nature, and we want to do the opposite. I have noticed this with, um, with my daughters. They have bicycles now, and they want to like go places. They ought not to go. And the more I tell them, please do not cross the street with your bike, the more like like street crossing becomes like the grandest adventure of all time, bypassing all of the Indiana Jones uh, films and, uh, and capturing their, their hearts. Um, 
But I want to say, friends, that while commandments can cause us to run the other way, commandments can be very helpful. Here's an example of, in my own life of how they become helpful. When I was 25 years old, I was uh, commissioned to plant this church, okay, with a, with a group that was very helpful. But the thing is, none of us had experience, and we didn't have money, and we didn't have a core group of people to help us. And so I had a lot of questions about, how do you do this? I mean, how do you plant a church? Uh, I've, I've, I've led a few Bible studies, but I don't know how, how to like do much more than that. And I have to tell you how universally unhelpful almost everyone was when I asked that question. When I would go to the diocese and I'd say, how do I plant a church? I, I wrote down the answers that I received to that question, and I will now share them with you. The most common one, just trust God and it will be fine. You know, it's true in a sense, but in the moment doesn't seem terribly helpful. Uh, another one, Ethan, you're already doing it, but I'm not. Like, we haven't started yet. I don't know. Uh, and then lastly, my least favorite, and sort of looking back on it, my most favorite. Well, Ethan, deep, deep down, you already know how to do it. Like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Uh, what I wanted was somebody with some clout, some authority, some wisdom to say, while it's complicated to plant a church, I think if you do these three things in the next few months, that would be a, those would be good ideas for you. Maybe you should just do that. That would have brought me such freedom and would have demystified the whole project. And, and what we have in Jesus is we, we, we have that authority who's come to us um, and, and has offered the, the most amazing uh, wisdom regarding the reconstruction of life. Um, you know, part of the Christian life is humbly admitting, this is close to step one of AA, that we have lost control of our lives, we don't have the freedom that we think we do, and we don't know the right answers. We're actually ignorant. We don't instinctively know what to do. Um, and, and so our Savior is also our teacher, and he comes to us, and he, and he teaches us things about the dignity of human life, and he teaches us things about um, forgiving people 70 times 7, and he teaches us things about how to, how to deal with enemies and people that make our lives hellish, and he teaches us how to, how to have healthy marriages, and he teaches us about money and the power that it can have over us, and he teaches us about eternal life and how to, how to get there, and he teaches us about how to love wastefully, not stingily. Um, and so um, this, is, this is the unique wisdom found in Jesus Christ and his person and his commandments that, that he teaches us that true power, true humanity is not found in grasping but in yielding. That we yield our wills, our often unruly wills, to the will of God. That's where the dynamism is. That's where the power is. That's where uh, reclamation is. And, and so he tells us to make disciples by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Notice how comprehensive he is. He says, all that I've commanded you. All. Um, those who claim the name of Christ can't legitimately like, divide up his teachings and dismiss half of them because we don't like them. Or they're not terribly fashionable right now. You know, I like what Jesus says regarding uh, poverty, but not what he says about sex. It's a little too confining for me. Or I like what Jesus says about eternal life, but I'm not really hot 
on what he teaches regarding God's potential judgment outside of the grace of Christ. I don't like that, so I don't want to face into it. Um, Friends, we only have one Jesus Christ, and he's a unified whole. And the real discipled life gleans from everything that he says without trying to parse out some of it because it, it afflicts us. In fact, if it does afflict us, that may be a very good thing. We may have something to learn. And we may want to begin to trust that, and I mean this in sort of a snarky way, but that the Son of God might be smarter than like we are. And so it may be worth hearing him out. <laughs> and, and it may be worth living into and under commands that we don't yet fully understand. And so in this, uh, in this way, we find true liberation, Right? Given the ever-changing contours of our times, and that's been true of every time, by the way, some of Jesus' teaching will be in fashion, other bits not so much. But his words direct and directives become for us an unsinkable Atlantis, an unshakable continent upon which we can build something really beautiful. And so, um, lastly, now you know this and will not be surprised that I'm saying it, but we are not saved by emulating or following Jesus Christ. But the good news is that we are saved and rescued, redeemed, um, in order that we might emulate Jesus Christ and be further liberated than we are right now. Because Jesus, in his uh, full humanity, is the expression of our future. It's what we're going to become in glorification anyway. Nothing wrong with living into that vision in the present. So we have a royal claim and a royal decree. Let me say a word about both and then I'm done. Uh, in terms of how they relate to us. Uh, um, You may know the name Abraham uh, Kuyper, a famous theologian, politician um, from yesteryear. Um, He said, he offers a phrase, his most uh, famous uh, phrase is one that I'll uh, speak of of now. Um, I I dismissed it for a while because it's been misused. It also makes Jesus sound like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Um, That said, that said, the phrase is a very good one, uh, if it's understood rightly. Uh, with humility. He writes, there is not one square inch of creation about which the risen Christ does not say, mine. Meaning, everything belongs to Jesus Christ and, and things will be redeemed into their full, truest expression because of Jesus Christ. Now, some will claim that Kuiper's claim, along with this text, Uh, from the Great Commission, is dangerous because it can create tribalism, a terrestrial North Korea, a sense of an invasive big brother. You know, it's in our current world with religious strife, it's better not to make absolutist claims about religious figures. You see what happens. It's dangerous. It's terribly dangerous. Uh, That's often true. That is almost always true. But we have to, with Jesus, consider the character of the royal claimant. And the character is demonstrated in the scars in his wrists and in his feet and in his side. This is the one who holds providence in scarred hands. We don't have to be afraid of of, of harshness and militarism and cruelty, um, though that's been true of the church in the past, but it's never true of the reign of Jesus. Not true, because we know him as the compassionate Christ who is the man for others. The providence is held in the hands of the man for others. The royal claim. Something now about the royal decree. Uh, We, again, make disciples by washing and teaching. And I say we make disciples for a reason. We. Making followers of Jesus Christ is a bodily act, not just that it involves physicality, but it involves the body of Christ, the whole church. And 
discipling people involves varying contributions from each member of the church, contributions that are unique to the person making them. Now, many preachers, many, um, I read so many sermons online uh, about the Great Commission and felt worse and worse every time I read a sermon. Um, Many preachers intentionally or unintentionally guilt their congregations when they discuss the Great Commission because they ask questions like this, how many disciples have you personally made? I bet you're not making any right now. I listened in in horror as one preacher online mocked in the nastiest of tones his ushers. Takes a real man to pick on church ushers. Uh, And he said, he said, um, and and I will now uh, quote, "Um, whatever you're doing as ushers, it is not making disciples who make disciples, and so it means nothing to God. What a charmer, huh? (laughs) Um, let, 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 me, let me say this. Um, discipling people, leading people to understand the Scripture, to pray, to interact with God in a deep way, um, leading people through healing prayer, through, through restorative confession, through, um, through the typical um, uh, uh, means of grace and disciplines of the church, those kind of things, um, it's a bodily act that we make disciples as a body, and each person has something to contribute. Some people can give their brains to the discipling cause. That is, they can think and write deeply about the best ways to communicate the good news. Some people can give their voices to the discipling cause and to teach other people in a compelling way about Jesus. Some people in the discipling cause can give with their hands through labor and money to aid the work of the kingdom of God. Some people can use their feet and seek out those who haven't yet heard the gospel. Some can give heart and compassion and creativity to those who need to see the love of God before they hear about the love of God. And so you don't have to, and you can't actually, disciple people all by yourself. There's narcissism in such a belief. But you do have a beautiful, unique contribution to make. Um, I had a, a friend uh, once critique me that, uh, that, um, a, that an undercurrent of my sermons is that we're all beautiful, unique snowflakes. <laughs> I didn't think that was true, but we're all beautiful, unique snowflakes in the sense that we all reflect uh, the, uh, the character of God in unique ways and are gifted in unique ways to accomplish the kingdom task. And so I simply ask you rhetorically, what's your part in that? And not to be ashamed that you don't have other parts in that enterprise. But you have something to contribute. You have something good. You have something holy. You have something glorious you can bring forth and contribute. You may say, well, I'm just one person. You know, I'm limited. I, I, I don't have all these talents. I'm inadequate. I'm not mature enough. Um, but, but if you think that way, I, I refer you to an African proverb, which, which says this. If you think you are too small to make a difference... Try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, <laughs> beautiful, terrible, weird. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. In this enterprise of helping people uh, to, to follow Jesus Christ, we'll fumble around, you know? We won't always get it right because we're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus in our current world. But we as disciples live under a beautiful pledge And it's not a pledge that's contingent about how well we do this thing. And the beautiful pledge is sheer gospel 
and it comes from the royal claimant, the great prince, who spoke after his commissioning these words of resurrection hope, and they're as true for you today as the air in your lungs. Those words, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.